Hello from Houston, and welcome to the Highlights Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. And welcome back to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Femi, and I'm a transactional attorney here in Houston. And my name is Patrick. I'm an arbitration lawyer also here in Houston. On this wonderful episode of Highlights, we have one of Hyla's own, Zachary Caballero. Zach, how are you doing? I'm thriving. I'm thriving, guys. There we go. So Zachary Caballero is a first-generation trial lawyer with Padilla and Rodriguez LLP. Zach has a personal injury practice where he advocates and fights on behalf of injured Texans and families due to the negligence of others, so personal injury. In, in addition to being a lawyer, Zach has also made an, a name for himself as being a nationally recognized award-winning poet. Zach was featured on HuffPost Latino Voices as one of the top 10 spoken word poets who speak to diverse Latino issues and um, he's also been in the Texas Bar Journal for his story as a poet and a lawyer. And in the same vein, Zachary is also deeply involved in the legal community, serving as a trustee uh, for the Houston Young Lawyers Foundation and serving on the board of trustees for the Texas Trial Lawyers Association. Zachary is also a former director of HILA. Among his many accomplishments in HILA, he spearheaded with um, these stories of first generation attorneys podcast, which is, uh, I mean, that, that's a great podcast. One of the, honestly, one of the reasons why we're doing highlights today, um, when that started up, that was, that was sort of right before the, um, the pandemic kicked off. And it was a great way to like, learn about, you know, various, uh, first gen stories. Wasn't it actually, I feel like it was after the pandemic happened and maybe exactly you, you obviously know way more about it than yeah than neither of us i think as far as like how it planned but my recollection is sort of like there was an event that was planned and when the pandemic made that event no longer possible this it kind of transformed into this uh podcast you're absolutely right uh patrick the the first gen committee actually received a grant from the texas young lawyers association to put on a live event that was kind of like a, a moth storytelling for lawyers, an open mic designed uh, for first oh, generation lawyers. I know, I know. I, I, it was really, really the brainchild of the whole committee of just like actually hearing stories from people and not just this is what my practice consists of. This yeah. is how I went to law school. This is how you get a clerkship, right? It's like all of those things are important information, but like the people behind the degrees are important yep. too. And so uh, because the life events were cut off, you know, we still wanted to find a way to um, put the stories out there. And uh, just by necessity, you know, by the pandemic, uh, we, we were able to cobble together a handful of stories, which I'm really proud of because there's a lot of great truth and vulnerability and honesty and, and raw emotion in those stories that I think aren't typically, I don't know, sought after maybe in the, in the legal community. All, all the time, at least. So you you just mentioned, you know, it was about talking about the person behind behind the degree. So who is Zachary? <laughs> you know, uh, 
the other the other uh, month I was. You'll have to listen to the podcast for that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> then you'll find out. <laughs> but to, to answer your question, I have to give you a story. The other a few months ago, I was at a friend's bachelor party, and I was cooking dinner for like ten different guys. So I love to cook. Layer one, and uh, <clears throat> I was standing in front of this mirror that had like a center, you know, big kind of circle mirror. You see your face, and then the perimeter of the mirror was like eight eight different small mirrors as a different shape and i was just looking at it caught my eye and i was just thinking in my head like huh here i am right in the middle the nucleus of me and there's that other reflection of me who's the poet and then a you know a lawyer and a husband and a brother and a son and an uncle and i started thinking of like okay these are all just different layers of me but i'm just me and so you know I've always been an optimistic, energetic uh, person who loves other people. Shout out to my mom who could make yeah. a wall talk <laughs> growing up. She was always so kind to strangers and people. And, uh, you know, I'm a talker. That's my, that's my uh, strength in this universe words. I love to listen to people and talk to people and share stories with people. And, you know, um, that's kind of the, that's the river that runs through it, my man. Mm. Well, so is there something uh, we you you have this identity as a lawyer, you have this identity as a poet, and then you mentioned like several other things. Is there anything that like sticks out to you as like a third or fourth place thing in your life that sort of energizes you uh, independent like in how you spend your time independent of like your job and uh, your second oh, job? Yeah, as a <laughs> I love I love to cook for people. Like, I don't mean like, just like come over for like a charcuterie board, which I finally managed to have a master, <laughs> but I mean, like, let me c come to my home. Don't worry about a thing. And let me just put the most delicious food in front of you. And I like cooking all day. I like having people come through because growing up, that was the most natural thing in the world. I was raised by a single mom. I have four brothers, five brothers now. And, you know, um, the way we all spent time together was just by going to my grandma's house or my aunt's house or someone's home and eating a meal. And that was like the portal to catching up and seeing family and talking. And so now I kind of just apply that to my, to my friends who are in, in Houston who are lawyers and, and who are not lawyers, but I don't always get to see them. So I'm saying, huh, I yeah. can, I can, I can pull a lot of people to my house by just giving them a menu. Um, and <laughs> my wife is always just astounded at how much food I cook because it's just me and her at home. And I'm like, well, you never know who's going to come through. Uh, and so yeah. I love to cook. I love to like entertain and host people. And then the pandemic um, allowed me to tap into baking as well as uh, the 25 pounds of flour that I bought at Costco uh, <laughs> in a moment of greed and necessity. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's all rooted in the same thing, which is like, for me, like my friends, like I can create a little community, you know, I can like, what's the, what's the most ancient thing to do is break bread and, <laughs> and speak yeah. to a person. Right. Like, yeah. so yeah. that for me is uh, like foundational and probably how I unwind. Like I, I, we entertain one of my wife's uh, good friends, Ben last night and Sunday night, right? Most people want to chill out and unwind. And no, nah, man, I was cooking, I was grilling, I was roasting, I was chopping, dicing. And it was just, you know, it's cathartic in a way. It's also like, wow, like I grew up, you know, always having to, uh, like being forced to go to these events where I got to see friends and family or whatever. And now, like, I'm the one bringing people to my home 
And so that's what really, you know, brings me joy. Yeah. And Houston's such a food-centric city that how can you not be excited about sharing a meal uh, in this city, whether it's at home or uh, outside? So that's probably the most um, consistent theme for me lately in between the law and the poetry is mm. food and cooking for other people. So I guess here, here, here's a scenario. You have about one hour. Um, your most coveted celebrity guest is on their mm. way. Oh wow! And 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 you need to create a three course meal. <clears throat> Name in it. One hour. In what? one hour. No, that's impossible. Okay. Well, no, it's not. Lucky. Not not Finn, for me. Finney, <laughs> you know I have watched Chopped my entire adult life, and so I think <laughs> I think this is a is a fair question, and I think I would start first uh, with a a pastry dough to begin for a small little pie perhaps a cherry pie, because that's going to take the longest to cook. And I want to get that in the oven quick. So for I'm thinking about dessert first. I'm going to do a cherry pie. And then okay. for, for the actual meal itself, you know, I'd probably whip up something like kind of dinery classic, like whether it be um, just a simple like Mexican meal of like, oh, here's some crispy beef tacos and rice and beans. And you may think, I've never had a cherry pie after crispy beef tacos and rice and beans, but I tell you this, it's a great combination of flavor. And my most coveted guest that you didn't yeah. ask me to name is Kyle McLaughlin, AJ Cooper from the 90s show Twin Peaks, among other oh, things. Oh, interesting. I'm a big, okay. I'm a big okay. Twin Peaks fan. I have oh, AJ wow. Dale Cooper oh, right here on my desk. Yeah. And so cherry <laughs> pie is... Uh, endemic to the show Twin Peaks. And so wow. I love to bake. That's the, that's the pastry part. And then right. the Mexican food, yeah, that's just like easy because I don't have to overthink it. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, so I would go to the basics. Appetizer? is we. I think that's two. So we need one more. Oh, cool. An appetizer. Yeah, no, an appetizer. <laughs> so typically, you know, I would just have a stack of like warm tortillas and then maybe like queso and salsa and, and then Ooh. just go from there, you know? Because here's the thing, chips and salsa are great. The next time you order queso at a restaurant, just order a stack of flour tortillas with it and just dip it and scoop it. And yeah, you'll never look back. You'll never look back. <laughs> oh, man. I, I actually, I ha we have to stop this right now. I, I need to take a trip to Nymphus. I will make that meal for oh. the both of you. <laughs> uh you be careful what you promise because we have a number of social calendar things that yeah, come, out, come out of this is, this is this being recorded oh no <laughs> <laughs> um that's i actually don't think i knew about that about you i feel like i've seen various posts perhaps on like facebook or instagram but i never knew how much you truly like to cook um and i wish i had prepared more questions a family came prepared and i'm sure we'll have more about it but um talking about the other pieces of your life and starting with poetry when exactly did that start for you and how has your journey as a poet been over the years and into becoming a lawyer now yeah the journey so the journey began uh with two different catalysts um and it started when i was about 12 seventh grade in round rock texas the ridgeview middle school uh well one is my english teacher at the time uh, Mr. Malcolm, he, uh, we were reading the outsiders. He asked us to write like a poem or a short story poem type response to the book. And I did. And, you know, at that time I, I always like reading and writing, but 
if you told me I was, a, if I, I would never said I was a poet. I would never said I write poems. You know, I played football. I was like, I'm tough. I'm going to write poetry. And uh, so I wrote a poem and I turned it in and, you know, he, he kind of just looked at me and he was like, this is a, he read it at his desk, right then in there. Um, like, this is a really good poem. You should keep writing. Mm. And no one had ever said those words to me before. Uh, he puts the poem on the whiteboard as like an example of a good poem like that same day. Um, and then the next day, someone either stole it or was thrown away. So it was either trash or treasure. But that was like my first kind of in school really writing experience where I can remember writing a poem. Yeah. So that kind of planted a fire in my brain to be like, okay, like whatever you just did, like that's not a bad thing. Whatever just produced that, that's it. You follow that, listen to that. Um, but the real catalyst for wanting to actually like see what it was like to read a poem out loud, to speak and perform with zest and zeal and energy and tenacity and smoothness and to command an audience, like to understand what the power of spoken word was. I wasn't even remotely aware of that until my older brother, Brent Brentley, um, exposed me to that through his own friendship with a poet named Karim, shout out, who's a dad now. And they were basically in the same English class together. And um, writing had been something that both of them had turned to as just as a way to process a lot of emotions and growing up and whatever it may be. And so Jonathan or Karim pulled my brother Brent to these open mics um, that were being hosted by Neo Soul Poetry Lounge and the youth poetry scene back then, which was called Texas Youth Word Collective. And so, a, there was already an infrastructure for like people who wanted to perform poetry in Austin and, and where I lived. And uh, my brother kind of just was taking my mom to these events because he was like 14 or 15 and he couldn't go. So my mom's like, I'm taking your brother to a poetry event. I don't really know what's going on. And yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. And then eventually uh, the more he gets invested and exposed and finds his voice, he starts to compete as a part of like a poetry team, not unlike a moot court or mock trial team where you, a bunch of people come together and they perform as a team together at a competition. And he started doing that at a competition called Braving Voices. He represented the Austin team and every week they would have practice in my mom's upstairs living room. And I would watch like these 15, 16, 17 year old poets, um, including my brother, like perform poetry, write original poetry together. They had a coach, uh, Mike Whalen, who was bringing through the, like, it's explaining, like, this is how you speak. This is how you should do this. Like that poem, you know, really writing and performing and workshopping. And I mean, taking this seriously. I don't mean just like, okay, here's a timer, go write something. I mean, high quality performance and writing. And I was just blown away by, A, that the poems and the quality of work I was hearing but also like, wow, like I want to go to the environment where they're performing these poems. Like I'm seeing them practice. Like I want to go to the space where the show's at. And then once I saw the spotlight in the stage, I think it was the middle child in me that said, I need to be up there and <laughs> I, need to, I need to be performing a poem and writing a poem too. Cause the writer part of me was there, but I was actually more nervous. I'm more with, I've always been extroverted, but I always haven't always been as outspoken and confident in my voice. Um, as I probably am now. And so, I mean, even then, just seeing poetry being performed literally right in front of me and then having like this day-to-day -day act of writing and learning, just someone in my corner saying, whatever you just wrote is really good. 
So you should keep writing it. Yeah. And I just kept diving back into the hole, you know, like, and, like just going back in, like finding poems I liked, watching poets on YouTube. Uh, my brother came home from the Youth Poetry uh, Festival and showed me a poet named Anis Mojgani, who I like fell in love with as a poet. And later he became my friend, which is super weird. But oh, wow. the, the, the total sum of the journey was that as long as I kept showing up to an event, as long as I kept writing or speaking or asking people to help, and the more I was not just in love with the idea of like using my voice to tell my story, it was more like, oh, I have a story. My gosh, like mm -hmm. I, 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 and I can find a space where I can tell those stories and people will listen to them, like truly listen. Um, and I was so enamored by just the magic of it all that eventually, I wanted to help build something similar to the organizations that I benefited from. So when I went to UT, I co-founded this organization with two other poets um, called Spitshine Poetry, which is a poetry organization for spoken word poets, any, any all poets. Um, and it became a place where we had open mics and writing workshops, and we raised money to send a poetry team to these collegiate national poetry slams. Mm -hmm. and. So I, I didn't just get enough from just performing poems and writing because um, ultimately I did get on the same poetry slam team my brother was on five years later. And then I was on a national poetry slam team when I was 19 and 20 and was coaching poetry at UT with really good poets. And the more I just fell in love with it, the more opportunities presented itself. So it was always just initially like a, a lure. I just wanted to keep being around poets because they were interesting and funny and spoke their mind. And um, that became the, the, the two portals, watching my brother perform poetry in the living room when I was like 13 years old and my teacher uh, telling me that I should keep writing. And it's been like 17 years since. <laughs> I mean, it's, I it's, sort, it's sort of as if um, there's now like an inseparable relationship between you and the written word now at this point i think that's a really spot-on observation which is the exact opposite of what everyone told me when i was going to law school which was like man like you're a poet like you're gonna lose your soul like someone <laughs> told me that law school is a black hole for souls <laughs> and i was like what like what do you mean like i was just so flabbergasted at this idea that like who you are is going to change mm. and it's going to be a worse version of yourself have fun. Like, and I was like, so, I, really, of <laughs> so I, I started law school genuinely with like, man, like, I guess I can't really embrace poetry in the same way. I, I, I mean, I just, I don't know how to not do it, but um, the resistance was futile because, you know, I, I couldn't stop myself from being present in this community. And everyone would say, Oh, you're still doing that poetry hobby. Are you still writing poems? And, you know, like I'm not writing every day, but I'm a poet, right? Like I, yeah. that's who I am now. And yeah. so at this point, you know, I'm, I'll turn 30 this month, uh, this month, I'm sorry, this year, April 2nd, shout out. And <laughs> I finally feel like I'm super okay with like, you know, there's no ego involved. I don't need to say, oh, I'm a poet. You better address me as such. It's just like, I, I firmly believe that like they are inseparable. And the more that I stand up and speak, in my job at a mediation or deposition or trial or whatever it may be, I am advocating, I'm standing up and speaking and I have an audience. 
Mm. That's exactly what I was doing as a poet, except my stories were were sometimes about me, about yeah. issues I cared about. I was the storyteller and I was the story. As a mm. lawyer, I'm the storyteller, but it's not my story. And yet, because I've been exposed to hundreds and hundreds and thousands of poems from poets across the country for right. the better part of two decades, I have this vast well of emotional intelligence and knowledge and I think sensitivity and understanding that I think really empowers me when I get to speak about maybe someone's pain, someone's suffering, you know, what they went through. Um, and again, it's almost like a subversion of what you expect because I, I had a friend at, at my weekly poetry event right about now here in Houston uh at avant garden every wednesday she had asked me you know does like does being a like a lawyer and a personal injury lawyer like drain you emotionally like does it make you bitter you know like um and i kind of was like you know that's a really great question and it's the answer is the opposite i have found that it has actually allowed me to sharpen and fine-tune my emotional well uh my emotional intelligence because you know we represent people whose whole case is centered around like the worst day of their life for the most part and the things that follow um, and that people are bad for advocating for themselves. You know, no one wants to say they're in pain. No one wants to say that, you know, they can't get up. No one wants to complain. No one wants necessarily the eyes to be on them. And so it's an inherently interesting thing because here I am anticipating arguments from, you know, lawyers and insurance, you know, adjusters to tell me like your client's faking, they're not hurt, like whatever, whatever, like they're lying, you know, and that may be true in some circumstances, but it's not always true. And so I really have to like take a step back and be like, you know, I don't want to get so hard, hardened to where I just assume the worst of everybody, you know, and I'm just expecting the negative out of everything. I mean, I truly do believe that we should think of the law as an optimistic public good, <laughs> like something people can turn to like medicine and actually like use for their benefit. And I have to, in my mind, like navigate that by focusing on the good and focusing on the fact that, wow, like this is a very difficult case, a wrongful death case or a catastrophic injury case where someone was hurt or died. And there's this loss now. And sure, I could let the kind of darkness eat the darkness, or I could just open the blinds and let the light in, right? Um, to quote Death Cat for Cutie. And so I really feel like the interwoven nature of me being a poet and me being a lawyer is really strong now. But I think the poet part keeps on giving to the law part. Because to be fair, I've been a poet longer than I've been a lawyer. And so I think I'm pulling lessons from both uh, sometimes. Yeah. I have a couple of follow-up questions about like the poetry piece before we kind of talk a little bit more about your legal practice. Um, one is just, I, I have zero frame of reference at all, honestly, for like this community of like poets, especially like the idea that they have, you know, organizations and stuff and like a place for you to participate in mm -hmm. at the high school or collegiate level. Um, do do any of your peers from that time or any other time, are they also still like active poets or if people sort of like put it down after they sort of like graduated and like are no longer part of those organizations or do they also, uh, are you sort of unique and like kind of carrying the torch with you? 
as much as I want to say I'm unique, I'm not because there are poets you everywhere. You won a ton of awards, so you, yeah, you, right. I'm sure you stand I mean, alone on some regard. <laughs> well, you know, there's things like that, sure. But in terms of like, you know, everyone, I think if you're a poet, you're always going to be a poet. There's no like, if people say, I haven't written a poem in a year, and I've been there before. Like, I, there have been phases where I didn't write a lot of time. So just to start, the metric doesn't have to be, you're still writing poems per se, performing every day. But I think that a lot of the poets that I've um, befriended and known and seen and so I'll keep in contact with, you know, they all have such interesting journeys. You know, some do prefer to follow the poetry track through academia and get an MFA and, and, and be a professor and publish a book. And I know so many incredible spoken word poets who are now like getting their work seen by you know, publishing companies because for so long spoken word and slam poetry was kind of mocked and looked at it and belittled as something that's not as serious as page poetry. But, you know, Robert Frost isn't going to get 2 million views on YouTube, right? Like the <laughs> poet here in Houston is. And so you got to be, a con be, you know, constantly aware of how we perceive yeah. the value of poetry. And so not everyone did pursue the academia route. Some were pursued professional routes, much like myself, whether it be law school or medical school yeah. or grad school or some sort. And some are still teaching artists and poets and have infused their missions with as a poet with their kind of missions in life and so social a lot of social justice and teaching artists um have become like interwoven like these concepts yeah. and these movements for like storytelling right like when someone is advocating for something like there's some type of story involved and so what's really neat is seeing all these poets kind of really disperse i mean they're poets all across the world but in these kind of small-ish communities of poets who, who went through the same competitions or poets who went through the same slam scenes. I mean, there still is a, as a, a gig, a market for live events. Yeah. And poets go on tour and they sell books and CDs and merchandise and create t-shirts. And I'm pretty sure there was a poet uh, on America got talent, America's got talent, uh, Brandon. And there's just been such a, I think um, a renewed interest in how poets don't have to be just poets. And that's one thing that like they do. Um, but I feel like I'm not unique in that I did go to law school and I became a lawyer, but I also know people who were just as inspired to do whatever that yeah. was in their heart to do. And poetry is like, sometimes it's the friend you miss, right? Like, oh, like I remember, mm -hmm. well, yeah, I've read poems five times a week and I was writing 10 poems a month and I was so prolific and so inspired. And maybe these days I'm not writing as much, but uh, myself, but I know a lot of people like me in the same boat, like the love for poets and books and stories. And it, 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 it kind of helps, I think, guide how you move through the world a little yeah. bit. And so I definitely think that I've been able to learn a lot from the other poets because there's that part of me that's like, man, like maybe I, I just wanted to write poems and like share <laughs> stories and you know, now I got a docket and uh, a lot of law school dead and, you know, man, maybe I should have been a poet instead, right? But <laughs> again, like those two, it's not like an either or for yeah. me anymore. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think that as a poet myself now, who's constantly like juggling everything else, like I'm proud of the, my friends who are poets, but also maybe have that other degree or did that other thing. And the poets who are still fighting to keep their voices heard and you know to to be yeah. um to be seen 
Well, so following along with my second, but this actually leads perfectly into my second follow-up that I had in kind of a maybe poetry 101 type question. Uh, can you briefly distinguish between spoken word and slam poetry? If there, It sounds like there is a difference there. And then on that same note, is there, a, in your mind or in your opinion, is there poetry that works when performed, but not when it's on the page? or vice versa, especially keeping in mind that I feel like as a lawyer, you you kind of use both of those skills in different ways, like when you're either speaking in court or writing a motion. But I'm just curious about poetry, especially with what you said about how people viewed it differently when it performed. Until recently. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, again, history, spoken word is the longest is the oldest oral tradition of like civilization, like it's how Homer passed down these stories. Right. And so for me, spoken word is a genre. It's a genre and it's literally just words spoken out loud, but slam has been used probably in the last 15, 20 years as the colloquial term. Anytime there's a poet performing in public, um, that's not necessarily wrong, but poetry slam has always been a competition, a competition with kind of pretty much consistent rules. You have five random judges in an audience who are listening to poems all night. They're selected by the host. They're not, they're not supposed to know anybody. They're supposed to be impartial, mm -hmm. but they can be anybody. They're just a common person. Um, and there's typically three rounds. Let's say you have 12 poets. Well, you cut poets every round. So you move from round one, 12 poets, goes down to seven poets, and then goes down to four poets, and you have a winner. And the way it gets cut down is these Judges are scoring each poem on a scale from zero to 10. Zero being, I don't want to hear that poem ever, right? <laughs> 10 being, I want to tattoo that on my firstborn child, right? And so you give the spiel, kind of say, this is the parameter, and the poets have their own rules. They have 10, three minutes and 10 seconds to perform their poem. If they go past that, there's a time penalty where mm. for every so 10 seconds or, you know, uh, yeah. 0.10 seconds past that, they get a half point or a full oh. point docked, depending on oh. where you perform. And so there's an incentive to be not super brief, but you know, sh don't be long-winded. Mm -hmm. um, and then a poetry slam is kind of like you're loud and raucous and people are yelling and encouraging the poet <laughs> and you have a winner. Then that's what differentiates a, a poetry slam from like an open mic. Right. Where there's no stakes yeah. involved. There's no winner. There's no loser. There's no judges. Anybody can go up on the mic and, and share a story or a song or a poem or a bar. And that's what what it's for. It's to kind of at open mics. I always encourage younger um, artists and poets who want to, like, get out in public and say, hey, like, I write too. like, how do I get out and get on the stage? Well, the first part is showing up. Uh, and then the second part is figuring out if, you know, you want to, like, throw yourself into the kind of gauntlet of a poetry slam where there's yeah. kind of pressure or do you want to take a step back and just go up and read your poem and be done for the night? And so that's the, just the kind of main big picture differences. But when people say slam, they're also kind of thinking as a genre of performance poetry, not boring poetry. And to your question about the kind of efficacy of page poetry or words on a page and words out loud, there's a difference. Um, Obviously, like shorter poems don't have the same momentum building, you know, mm -hmm. um, there are one minute poetry slams and two minute poetry slams and where the specifically designed to be shorter, but brevity is difficult to build up in a, 
than a performance because you're trying to build an audience, give them hooks and turns and give them a real performance. And so there are certain things that I think, uh, certain poems that don't work as effective as a performance piece. Because here's the thing about Poetry Slam, like the, the genre of the actual work itself is as vast as anything. I mean, it can be funny or serious or political or stupid or, you yeah. know, like historical or social justice oriented, whatever it may be. And so um, I think that those type of stories, things that maybe people are responding to the news or an issue, I mean, those are effective in terms of like your people are kind of processing how they feel. Um, but when you're performing, much like maybe when you're speaking as a lawyer, you want to have like, they gave us all the book, that same book, you know, 1L year, plain English. Like, yeah, you're a lawyer, but speak plainly and clearly. And so there are some poems that are just beautiful on the, t on, on the text. And maybe the poet will read them at a poetry reading, but it's not designed to have the same sonic qualities the same performative intonation and then right in tones and yeah. pauses and also audience playback like in a poem on the page you can't have your reader really participate in the same way that if i do a call response with a live audience like i have a poem uh called when you say my name and it's about how to pronounce my last name caballero mm -hmm. and i have the audience pronounce it with me and i have them say caba yellow and like they all say it at once and it's a really cool feeling but that would be really difficult to do on page <laughs> on paper uh you know it just wouldn't be effective like you have to write stage directions essentially um and so <laughs> there is that's kind of like you know sometimes when you're competing and slamming for these competitions and stuff there's a strategy so to speak you know like do i want to do a poem that I think is going to play really well, or do I just want to read a poem that's important to me? And I just wrote it and it's super raw and emotional, or do I want to do my funny poem because, you know, people need to laugh. Right. And so <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think it's, um, you, for the non you know invested poetry, the everyday person who just knows what poetry is, but doesn't go beyond that. Um, if you read something with gusto, if you bring it to life, you can transform what's on a page and give it and give it life by performing it out loud um it's just it's just a matter of what you want some some people think spoken word performance poetry is gimmicky or it's lazy or you know it doesn't rhyme like here's here's newsflash people there are no rules <laughs> there aren't any rules language is created every word was made up like let's relax we can have flexibility with how people express themselves and you know uh, i say that now because a lot of my friends and colleagues and people I admire from afar and know are spoken word poets who are getting Ruth Lilly Fellowship Prizes and getting like, you know, National Book Award nominees and they're on the New York Times. And it's like, ah, like it only took a few years, 10, 15, for this kind of immersion of just so many voices that just can't be denied. I mean, if you think about it, like generation wise, every year for about 10, 15, 20 years, there was a a youth poetry festival, an adult poetry festival. And every year there's a crop of poets and people who are getting better and telling stories and working on their art. Mm -hmm. um, and that a majority of the time, those are people who probably don't have access to MFA programs or, you know, can't, don't have the same type of exposure to like 
whatever people deem as real poetry, right? Serious poetry. And so I'm super proud of just every single spoken word slam poet that is grinding and working and trying to make themselves heard because in a world where people already kind of look down at like liberal arts and stories and things like that, like, why do we need art funding? Who cares about art? Meanwhile, they just binge a Netflix show that was written by a writer, right? So it's like, yeah. it's every it's everywhere. And, and at the same time, it feels like there's a lot of distance between the kind of appreciation of like, you know, like we don't have to, we don't have to yuck someone's yum, right? We can all love poetry in a different way. Um, and spoken word has kind of just been my, my like water for the soul, you know, the river I drink from. Well, you know, I, I don't even know how we transition to your career. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, this has just been very enriching to hear. Um, and I mean, I've, I, I've, I've heard a lot just about your, your experience as a poet. Um, and it's just great to hear it from you directly. So I guess, I don't know. Thanks, Benny. I appreciate it. I appreciate hats it. Hats off to you. Um, I want to formally say that. But, but I do want to hear, especially since you did say that, you know, um, you're, in in your practice as an attorney what you do is you become the storyteller for others and that's very important and and that's what i i would say a lot of times when people talk about you know the the downsides or or you know the cons of the legal field that's sort of what they're not focused on they're always focused on you know such and such lawyers just out to make money at the behest of someone else's pain. And I mean, I don't think that's the case. Like there are a lot of attorneys who wake up every day and they know that, you know, they worked hard because they wanted to use their energy and their power for good. And, and you're one of those people. So in that vein, tell us about it. Like how, how do you bring your, your, you know, your, your whole self, into the courtroom, into the deposition to, you know, to tell the story for your client? Well, that's a great question. And honestly, I would be, um, I would be lost without the guidance of really helpful mentors, people in the, in like this, in the trial lawyer community. So, you know, I am uh, involved with the Texas Trial Lawyers Association and uh, through a lot of like network and member mentorship and things like that, I've been able to kind of trust my process which kind of as you mentioned is sometimes people don't focus on the part of the process which is client driven and story driven but big picture right is that most of the people i represent are everyday workers a you know, common person right like and um all they know is that something happened to them and like they're dealing with the consequences of it and so you know the immediate vil you know villainy right of like someone who's like making a claim for something right it's just like oh my goodness right like people like for example for here in houston right the astral world incident it's kind of everybody can knows what happened and all these claims are being made and and yet like there were some real like real deal things that were happening and so i think it's just important not to buy into the narratives like i, I mean if i had a dollar every time i introduced myself and told someone what i do they go oh you're an ambulance chaser and i'm like uh Okay, I've seen The Simpsons too. I get the jokes, but um, no, yeah. I'm not. Uh, that's actually unethical. I'm the first lawyer in my family. Two generations back, my grandfather was picking cotton. So I take my job very seriously. 
And right. uh, I don't think it's funny to like belittle what someone does. And so I, at first I would laugh at them, but then I come at them real quick and they, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I know. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm glad. And I hope you never get hurt and never need a lawyer because gosh, like people don't choose when these things happen, right? It's random. It's, you know, a weird twist of fate. And so like in that, in those scary moments, like it becomes important to uh, root them in a path and understanding and a, and a doorway out the next step. And so, you know, TTLA and the lawyers I've met, they really have kind of instilled this belief that, you know, we're not just doing this for, to get paid, right? We're doing this because A, we have a constitution that says every person has a right to a trial by jury. And we have a Texas constitution that says that and then some, right? And so like, these are inviolable rights that are, again, part of this public good, the law. And there are efforts always to try and diminish the right to a trial by jury, to take someone's claim and maybe make them settle or tell them that there's not as valuable. And maybe there's a language barrier. No one understands exactly what they should do. And so there are higher, there's a higher calling, I think, to the job than maybe what some people can see at the surface level. And again, a lot of what I bring to the table is as a first generation lawyer, it's like, there's nothing for me to compare it to. Like, I don't want to complain. I don't want to belittle the work. Yes, I don't always like my job because I'm a human being, but I love what I do because I find the purpose that it gives me every day is much more palatable than if I wasn't doing this type of work. And again, I've never had any reference to what the work would be. I didn't have a lawyer in my family. I uh, didn't even knew I wanted to do personal injury law until... Uh, a job presented itself and I took a contract position as a, like a plaintiff's you know, contract lawyer for uh, personal injury. And I learned that, wow, like this is story driven. Yeah. I got to summarize medical records, but because there's a story being told here and um, one, you know, one thing that uh, is important for me is when I talk to my clients and either preparing for a deposition or a mediation. Like one thing I always want to know is like, tell me your stories of joy. Like, let's just take this incident out of the way, like throw it away, pretend this didn't happen. Like, what would you do to be happy? You know, and you would be stunned at the simplicity of the answers. Like, it's not like, oh, I want to go horseback riding in like, you know, Egypt or something, or I need to go to Cabo. And I, you know, it's like, you know, I miss going on walks on Saturday mornings with my family. Uh, I can't dance as long as I used to. Oh, I, I can't cook anymore because I have to stand up and my back is in pain. Or God forbid someone's even more catastrophically, catastrophically injured and they don't have a brain injury or, you know, loss of, uh, you know, arm or a leg or quadriplegic, right? And so the spectrum of someone's pain and injury or harm varies, but the importance of what they lost should never vary. So just because maybe someone had a huge incident and they're really hurt, I mean, yeah, like the value of that case legally damage-wise is probably different than a case where someone isn't as hurt or as injured. But if that person lost something, something was taken from them, well, then like, I have to be the one that tries to articulate that because those stories of joy, whatever they missed whatever they couldn't do anymore and they love doing, um, that's not going to be in a medical record. That's not going to be in the, inter I mean, it's not going to be well taken in an interrogatory, right? Yeah. You know, 
well, not like it's almost like mocked. Like it's almost like oh, like fake, wrong. You're not that you know big, of a, and you're not that hurt. Like it's always this minimization. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is to be a you know bull in a china shop, but also walk the line with my voice. With that's all I got, guys. That's all we have as lawyers. Yeah, we can write and type and send a letter and a motion but when we get called on it we have to use our voice and i am just so grateful every day that i spent years of my life having people teach me how to use my voice that had nothing to do with the law because now when i bring my like eyes to something it's a fresh perspective and i'm not as i don't want to be jaded by the job but it is tough and it is hard and it is difficult and it can be heavy you know um but the flip side of that again is the bright side of it which is i get to help people i always wanted to help people i always wanted to do my version of good um i didn't know what that would mean until i guess i got into the thick of it but you know here i am and i'm proud of what i do and i think every yeah. personal energy lawyer should be proud and of course like there's always the bad apples you know i'm not going to say that all of my fellow trial brothers and sisters and brethren and people are all, all believe the same thing that I do. And that's okay. But, you know, um, I just feel like it is not, it's not something that should be mocked or belittled. And I feel like young lawyers, even law students, like it's like, Oh, PI, like what? I don't want to do that, but there's a lot of good to it. And I think that gets missed out a lot. And I've always been reminded by that, by the people I look up to and my mentors and my friends who are doing this work with me. Hey, I mean, it's, it's incredible in the sense that like, I feel like going through law school and even starting work and the leadership academy, and there are so many places where this message, this idea of like being authentic or genuine in your practice is essential to sort of like long-term well-being and long-term success. And I feel like you're a perfect example of this in that many non-lawyers and even lawyers have this preconceived idea of what a PI attorney is based off like, you know, commercials that the main ones that advertise on television, right? And they're the most aggressive, like tough presenting people. And it's very interesting just how you giving this story of like, oh, I asked him like what brings joy. And that's just very clearly this, you're very clearly an optimist. And I'm just curious if there are ways where you've seen it affect, like not necessarily the results, but just sort of like how it's affected your experience in a proceeding or in a interaction you've had with a client or with opposing counsel or how, how you see yourself as different from like other PI attorneys. Well, you know, so about to get real for a moment. Um, I, when I talk to clients, when we sign up a new client, when someone, when I meet them for the first time and finally get to introduce myself, like, I don't try to be brief. I don't say, okay, I'm Zachary, I'm going to handle your case. Like, this is what we're going to do and call my assistant, you have questions. Like, first of all, I treat them like a human being. And I really want them to know that I, I, I get what they're going through because I do. Um, November 11th, 2018, I was driving home on a Sunday uh, and outside of Giddings on 290, when uh, another driver fell asleep at the wheel, crossed over the um, center line, uh, hit me dead on. Uh, didn't know what happened. My car flipped and rolled and slid 60 feet, landed upside down. Um, the driver hit 
the car behind me. Uh, and the driver who hit me, he passed away. Um, they, mm. it was a fatal collision. Um, it was the scariest moment of my life. Um, and the most sh earth shattering mm -hmm. realization through it all is when I crawled out of my car and realized that I had at that time, I'm not a doctor, but I had no, I had no scratches. I was not bleeding. I had wow. no visible injuries. I didn't break a bone. Uh, wow. EMS checked me out. I literally crawled out of my car so fast. Yeah. and wasn't like outside of my body like like a doctor strange moment where like i just got knocked out in my astral form yeah and someone is yelling uh who's in that car who's in that black car and i literally because it happened so quickly and they th they thought i was still stuck in in my car and i said it's me me i i <laughs> me it's me <laughs> yeah i'm here wow. and um you know it was a terrible 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 collision you know, it started raining. The whole road got backed up. I was two and a half hours, you know, out of Houston. I had just left my mom, my grandma's house, my mom and my brothers. And, you know, I had to call my mom and tell her what happened. And, you know, my whole car was totaled. The back tire got ripped off. Um, you know, the woman who got hit behind me was really badly injured and they had to take her away. Um, I was the only person there uh that was involved in the wreck who wasn't seriously hurt or had been killed walk away. and i walked away from that and wow. like, i didn't go to the hospital to the next day i talked to the ems and they're like they're in shock like like were you in the car you like i was i was the driver like all my airbags deployed like yeah it happened in an instant um and it's a miracle it's yeah, just yeah. a miracle that I am here yeah. talking to you today. Yeah. Um, the next year, I started working at my firm, Padilla Rodriguez. Now I got engaged. You know, like all of these things happened on the other side of this really awful thing. And of course, as the first year lawyer I was, like, I was like, my. Hmm. lawyer brain was thinking all these things and what's going on and insurance and police reports and like but for i was just a human being in that moment and it was scary and it was traumatic and i was pumped with adrenaline and even my sophisticated you know air quotes for those who are listening self i was in shock and i only like my brain just went in auto mode and i talked to the police i gave him a statement and i was explaining what went wrong and you know what happened and uh it was just a very sobering moment and I have people who walk into my office and walk into my firm and we sign up and work with who are the family of someone who's been in an incident where they were killed and or really hurt. And here I am, not a single scratch on me, you know, like walked yeah. out of it. And so yeah, yeah. I get to sit across someone and at least have a human to human moment where I can say I I know exactly what you're going through, believe it or not, in terms of at least the trauma of an incident like this, yeah. um, mm -hmm. the emotional baggage, right? Like I, guys, I still got get survivor's guilt and it's not something that I would wish on anybody. And so when people go through these things and then they have like this emotional baggage or this new story, this new shadow that's now a part of them, like to have someone spit in the face of that and just demean it you know like 
that'll get you, that'll pick you up in the morning. <laughs> Let me tell you, yeah. it'll be you motivated to, to really find that higher calling in terms of like, this isn't, again, Dr. Strange reference, this isn't about me. This is not about me. And so as much as I want to get like all riled up sometimes when people are like, oh, personal injury lawyers, like, and I do, but like in my everyday job, I'm like, okay, like they're not saying these things because that's me as a lawyer representing my client. They're just, that's what they believe in. They think people are faking and lying and that didn't really happen the way you said it happened and yada, 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 yada. But there's a human truth to a lot of what we do. And I get to at least sit down against someone who's probably never had a claim, never had a lawsuit. They don't know me, right? Um, but I give them that. I give them that piece of me because I'm going to ask for parts of them later when they have to give testimony or explain why their life changed or what they're missing or what stories of joy are taken away, right? And so um, that for me is like the, it's funny how these things happen. Like it's not that I plan yeah. on this to happen, <laughs> but for like to a personal injury lawyer to survive uh, like a fatal collision and not be hurt, like, I don't know. I don't know, but it does give me something that I can give my clients and make them feel like they're a little, little less alone in that conference room. Right. Um, so that's yeah. probably it guys. That's probably it. I mean, I can see why you dropped two Dr. Strange references there. Um, and you'll have to let me know the, the make and model of your car later. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Scion XD. I don't make any more, but I got a Toyota RAV4. There you go. Toyota makes Scion. And to reference earlier in the episode, my car's name is Agent Cooper. Boom. Oh. Full circle. <laughs> he is a poet, guys. Uh, he's mastered the callback. <laughs> well, you know, Zachary, a poet and a protector. I, I think this has been Thank you, friend. one of the one of the coolest episodes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I had to bring out all the stops. Um, th th this has been one of the coolest episodes. Um, I think it's it's just been wonderful to hear your story, hear um, what you bring to the legal practice, which we need. We need more people to bring their true, true, authentic self um, to the practice. Because I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people do. You know, you you spoke about how in law school people think that you you sort of become a husk of your former self and. That's that's not really the case. I've I've seen a lot of people continue to do what they were doing prior to law school and continue to do it after. They may not have the time. <laughs> they may not have yeah. the same amount of time, but they still do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it's great that you know your clients get to have you um, as their advocate in court or you know on on the docket. So thank you so much for what you do um, in our in our city. Thank you, Femi. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. It means a lot to me. And I'm honored you guys would ask me on to share my story. And, you know, uh, as much as I've, you know, I think I've given, again, I've received so much, like, from people who care, take an interest and ask me, hey, like, how's poetry going? Or, hey, like, you're the poet, right? Or, right, you're involved with Hyla. Like, so as much as I've been able to give, I feel like I've been equally able to receive. And I'm very grateful for that. So I, I sorry. I have two things. Okay. I want you to send us, you, you can send us a link to one of your poems that's online somewhere. Like maybe there, sure. you know, there's a recording and we'll put that in the show notes so that people can, can take a listen. Um, thing. And yeah, the absolutely. second one, I always have like, you know, a fun question. 
So this is my question. And I, I think it, I think <laughs> it works for you. I mean, we, unfortunately we, we brought up food way too early. <laughs> that was your mistake. <laughs> I know that that's normally my go-to. So I guess, you know, we can't use that, but this is what I'll say is if we were playing a game of Scrabble, what would be your first word? Like what, you know, your, your big mm. word, what would you pick? I wish I, I wish I could show you. I have a deluxe Scrabble board that my friend gave me for my wedding where you can spin it and this letters yeah. won't move. But uh, gosh, I'm going to go. Let me see. Ooh, okay. I'm going to go with garden. Garden, okay. And I say Cult that because I have a garden of the gods okay. poster behind me. And that's a strong <laughs> six-letter word. And it shows my <laughs> opponent that I'm just one letter away from a seven-letter word. So be careful. There you go. <laughs> Wait. What? What's the seven-letter word? No, oh, no, never he, mind. No, You're no, just like no. you could have. Oh, I'm yeah. Like, yeah, yeah no, can you add to garden? You see thing? garden, and you think, <laughs> exactly. oh wow, he could have. Man, if he had that S, it would have been garden. Exactly. Gardens. And then boom, there you got fifty extra points. Is. So you know, start right. off strong. <laughs> See, it, it, it also works because, you know, you, you cultivate minds with your poetry, right? <laughs> Boom. Uh, That's right. Uh, That's right. Planting seeds. There you go. What you sow. Oh, man. So Ooh, there we go, Patrick. <laughs> there we go. Before the buzzer. <laughs> Love it. Well, awesome, thank you, guys. Zach. Well, thank you for y'all's time. Appreciate it. Thank no you. No problem. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Highlights Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlightspodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.